consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Is the episode that almost wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) The episode that almost broke our six-year streak of never releasing an episode late. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) Not quite. This will come out on time. But so life has been a little intense lately. It's... uh, I call it spinning plate mode. Like, you know, the, like, um, what is it at the circus or the fair? Oh yeah. They they'll spin plates on a stick and they have to like, keep them all going. They're running from plate to plate. Well, I can't even count on two hands, the number of stressy voice memos I've been sending you lately. Like it's, it's spinning plate time of the semester. <laughs> um, so I was, <laughs> I couldn't sleep. I was up at 2.30 a.m. just stressing and fretting about everything that I have going on, which, by the way, is a bad idea. Like, I woke up and I was like, it's not that bad. But, like, in the middle of the night, in the dark, with no one to talk to, only myself, I was convincing myself that everything was, like, truly a disaster, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so I look at my phone and I realize... It's September 14th. So I texted you at 2.30 and I was like, we have to put out an episode in like 15 hours. (laughs) Well, here's the thing too. Like, this is not your fault. Like, I had the thought the other day, like, oh, we really need to record a dish soon. I need to send her a voice memo about that. And then completely forgot. The moment the thought happened, I forgot about it. My brain cannot be trusted right now. No. It's untrustworthy. You say right now. I say for me, never. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how do you, this is our topic for for our dish today. Our fitting topic. (laughs) How do you handle stressy times? What is your advice? In my best moments is the context of my answer, which for, for full transparency I am not always at my best. Um, like yesterday at 2.30 a.m. Or today at 2.30 a.m., I guess it would be. I have found, I know I've spoken about this before, meditation to be my um, kind of best way to cope with it. And um, I use a specific program. I use the 10% Happier app. I highly mm-hmm. recommend it. But they use the metaphor of getting behind the waterfall that like if you were standing Mm. in a waterfall Mm -hmm. everything's rushing at you it's overwhelming you can't think you don't have time to breathe you feel panicky and that meditation is a tool 
that it does not stop the water. It does not change the amount of things you have going on. It doesn't change the thoughts. It doesn't change any of that, but it's a tool to help you get behind the waterfall Mm -hmm. so that you're, you know, able to be removed from it and you're dealing with it rather than caught up in it. Mm -hmm. And so that has been an extremely useful technique to me right now. Um, that, app has a stress dealing with stress challenge. It's like a 30 day Mm. challenge. And it was so funny because yesterday, the past couple days, I've not been thriving, let's just say. And I was doing it. I was like, okay, I have like five minutes, not enough time to do anything, but I'll do the session. Okay, fine. And during the whole session, I was honestly like, oh, shut up. Like it was, and I just like hated every minute of it. I was so irritated by it. I, it was not my best day of the practice. So I'm what I'm not trying to do is sit here and message and be like, you know, I know you may feel stressed, but just meditate. And then who cares about anything like that? No, mm. it's not. It's just a tool. That honestly makes me feel better because I often tell the app to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, that is unrealistic. What you're telling me to do right now is not possible. Honestly. <laughs> But I do find it to be a useful tool. And, uh, you know, I uh, even just taking a second to like pause and sit and be still. It doesn't work perfectly. It doesn't work all the time. But for me, it works the best, most effective. So that's kind of what I would recommend. I know other people like Calm. Mm -hmm. I think Calm also has like a free option. Like there's an more unpaid stuff in Mm -hmm. calm so if budget is an issue you might start there yeah yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. what about you Mm -hmm. what are your coping mechanisms well the way you ask that question implies that there are coping mechanisms (laughs) (laughs) i'm just kidding actually my main coping mechanism is in arizona right now (laughs) (laughs) my wife uh plays a great role in regulating my emotions (laughs) She's not home. <laughs> no, but honestly, the things that make me feel better are like healthy um, escapes from my own thoughts. So meditation is not an escape for me from my own thoughts. So that is not always super helpful. I do. And I do think that I need to meditate more because I think it does help me long-term but short-term um like remembering to pick up my book instead of scrolling on my phone Mm. Mm -hmm. that that is actually really helpful or like okay I need to take a break but let's take a break that is good for me so let me take a walk you know like something that actually tangibly makes me feel better or gives me a break mentally from the thoughts that are um, spiraling. Like my Becky always says that, you know, I do thought spirals all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, stopping those loops, social media scrolling does not stop those loops for me. Yeah. Uh, I have to, I have to actually be completely absorbed in something else. No, that's a great point. Cause I've had times where I'm really like stressed about something and then it'll be time to teach a lesson. And at the end of the lesson, I'm like, Oh, and like, you know, yeah, getting distracted yeah. and not being in it is mm-hmm. such a good, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that is like the main thing that really helps. And that's why like having, you know, a pet or a partner or some, like having something or someone else to focus on mm-hmm. can be super helpful. So, you know, if you're feeling this way along with us and maybe, you just need like a moment, maybe go ask a friend to get coffee or something. Actually go ask a friend to get water because I also find that hydration, like Uh I always underestimate how feeling hydrated can make me feel so much better and level-headed and Mm -hmm. less tired and all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, I have an app for that too. The answer to life is not an app, but I'm making it sound like it is. So find some apps. (laughs)
Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Lindsay Flowers, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome, Lindsay. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. (laughs) We usually start with the same first question, which is to find out how you came to play your instrument. When did you get started on the oboe and what made you start? Yeah, I started in the fifth grade, like many people. Um... I grew up listening to flute lessons in our home every day. My mom taught high school and junior high students. Um, This was in Seattle, Washington. And I think I heard 40 hours of flute lessons a day. And that was a large part of my music education at that age. So I remember um, the first time I was playing oboe, I couldn't get a sound out of the reed. And my brother's like, you're supposed to be able to soak it and make a sound. And I was crying and I couldn't make it work. And then finally I did. And I played the whole standard of excellence. Did you guys do standard of excellence? Yeah. 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 So I did the whole standard of excellence in like the first night. (laughs) I was like, like, I'll show you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was fun. So, um, but growing up, I was always really into sports and team sports. And so I, um, between music and sports, it was uh, everything competitive <laughs> at that age. And and it, it was just, uh, I really had fun with it all. And I probably was prioritizing sports a lot more than music. And so I was um, playing volleyball year round and I never did the youth symphony thing and I never, I didn't go to an undergrad to pursue music. I went to play volleyball and um, so I went to school at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, in my freshman year volleyball season, I had uh, two back surgeries and that pretty much sidelined me and that pretty much crushed, crushed that dream. And so with the music department there, um, they were so supportive of, me and I was starting as like a kinesiology major with a coaching minor and then um they were like why don't you try music and I could go in the practice room it was like going to the weight room and do lifting weights right it was doing all the things that I was doing for volleyball I just channeled that into oboe and into music and um I had a really great teacher there Marilee Klemp who was an Eastman student and she was so wonderful and encouraging and then um, I auditioned for a master's program at Indiana University and went there with uh, Linda Stroman and Roger Rowe. And then since I didn't have much, I, I mean, it was great experiences. I played a concerto every year in my undergrad. It was great. But in my master's, I needed just like the fundamentals that of a, being in a large studio that I I was the only oboist. So um, like pursuing oboe in my undergrad. So I just needed more lessons and I needed more time studying. And um, so I did a master's degree, a performance diploma and a doctorate at IU. And I felt like every, it's such a big school that every year I got such different experiences. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember even Ms. Stroman went on sabbatical towards the end of my uh, degree, my doctoral degree there. And I studied English horn with Roger Rowe then, and still worked it with the teacher, the great teacher she brought in. But, um, yeah, I just got a lot of experiences there that I didn't have, uh, when I was younger. So that was really good. And a lot of people go into a doctoral program thinking like they're 
going to be a college professor. And that that was not the case for me. So I just needed more lessons. And <laughs> in fact, I was like, I'm never going to finish this degree. I'm going to get a job before then. You know, it's kind of my mindset. And it, it's amazing how your goals change over the years and how how life takes you on a journey. And it, and it can be a completely different path that you set out. But um, you're such a summation of your experiences that no matter what your experience is, if you're pursuing it with all your heart, like it's going to benefit what you end up doing in the end. So um, maybe it's like uh, with volleyball, I couldn't be the player. And so I didn't want to be the coach. And so with music, I was like, I could be the player. I could be the player. I don't want to be the coach. And so that was probably where my mindset was coming Um during my doctoral studies, potentially not necessarily going teacher track with that. Um, And so I finished my coursework in 2013. And then it's like over a decade later now that my main job is like you introduced me as the assistant professor of oboe at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it's like, it's just dawning on me, like, this is my identity, because this has not been my identity or what I was pursuing, like my whole career. And I think that is quite all right. And I love it. And I think every dream of being a coach after being a volleyball player is like being fulfilled now, like with I get to play, I play in the Madison Symphony and the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra. And Madison is so close to the Twin Cities, Chicago and Milwaukee. It's a great place for freelance work. And so I have my hands in a lot of things, which I love and that's um how how where I'm at where I'm at today it's such a testament to your resilience to come up against such a major obstacle of oh I can't do my passion anymore like very early on and then having to pivot like that and just pick a new one Um, that's really impressive and oh. inspiring. And it's really cool to hear you be able to do that with, um, a great attitude. And I'm sure it was more difficult at the time than <laughs> just like reciting it now. Um, but, but I'm curious what, um, would you expand more maybe on the role of grit and resilience? Mm-hmm in music and oboe playing yeah absolutely or volleyball (laughs) (laughs) totally I mean in volleyball it was we you win half the time and you lose half the time even when you're an amazing you have to know how to lose and bounce back and play the next match so at these tournaments we play you know 10 matches in a weekend and it was just you just go, you just move on to the next thing. And, and that is totally what we have to do in music. We have to like something that some solo doesn't go the right way you want it in orchestra. You just have to move on and you have to think about the next thing. If you dwell on it, that's only going to get your heart rate up and (laughs) tension set in and, Mm -hmm. and things won't go so right in the future. And we have to, um, you know, just, just always be forward thinking, always be on the offense I like to think of that like with audition taking, I pro I, I don't even know. I've taken an embarrassingly amount of auditions, maybe three digits, <laughs> but I've learned a lot through those. And maybe I've only had a few yeses, but those are, that's all that you need to shape a career, but you have to be on the offense. You have to walk in there and know that you are in control of this room, even though you have to go with the flow of everything. Right. But you're, you're prepared the way you prepared you want to stick to the plan you don't want to try too hard because that's always going to backfire on us and so just knowing what you're doing that mental prep so a lot of the mental prep that I had in volleyball visual visualization and um teamwork also is so important so with uh a studio I really think of and maybe teamwork or competitiveness was a thing in my past that probably or past and present I think it's actually a very positive thing but I think in my past when I thought of competitiveness maybe it would even be a comparing thing and it would be debilitating in such a way and shut you down but then if you can think of competitiveness as 
getting better. Like your teammates get better. So you get better. We always talked about that in volleyball. We would scrimmage against ourselves because we were our own best competition. And I really think about that. Like with the studio, we want to be making each other better, celebrating each other's successes, because when your peers are successful, it'll make you more successful. And so if we can think of competition in that way because a lot of times when we're training as young musicians it's like a competition here and there and there and this past week I was teaching at our summer music clinic here at UW and it's amazing the ringer they put the these kids through like three separate auditions and it's like wow and that's not necessarily reflective of the professional world the professional world needs more like persistence and um you have to continue really hard to hone your craft in such a way that even just maintains your ability. You're not necessarily going to always be uh, getting better. And so working really hard to maintain takes endurance. Whereas the younger children right now, I think (laughs) all these competitions, maybe this is just fresh on my mind because I was teaching there last week, but it just felt like it's, uh, I know we have to be competitive to win an audition, but Once you do that, we don't want to be competitive with our colleagues. We want to be supportive. We want to uplift the people playing next to us. It doesn't matter if they're better or worse. Like that's not even a mindset in the profession. In the profession, it needs to be, how can we make this the best artistic product possible? (laughs) And I just like think we need to change education in that way. Um, that in the studio, it has to be a supportive environment. Yes, we're competitive, but we're not going to compare ourselves because that's only going to lead to disappointment. It's never going to make you feel better. And if it does, that's ego. That's not confidence. So the, I guess, <laughs> I don't even remember that's, what the question that, no, was that's, now. But... <laughs> no, that's awesome. And it reminds me of this quote that I saw recently that was, um, there is no competition at the top. The people at the top are collaborating, not competing. Yes. That's so and I was like, I need that. I need that on my wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really good. You know, uh, so I always think about sports and like other sports other than volleyball. So my husband and I have been golfing a lot. I grew up golfing a little bit since the pandemic. You know, of course, uh, a lot of people have been golfing because it's an outdoor activity. And but sure. um we think of like Tiger Woods as the goat, right? And how how it's amazing to me that he has like 10 different coaches, probably way more than that. His swing coach and uh, just every, every aspect of his game. And I feel as artists, when we get into the profession, we like suddenly don't have our teachers anymore. We're all on our own. And I'd like to think of it like it doesn't matter if someone is better or worse than you, you can learn from them and you can really grow as an artist if you, if you have mentorship around you. So um, when I was out of school, I um, went after Indiana before I even completed my uh, comp exams and dissertation, I played for three years with the civic orchestra and um, in Chicago. And I was mentored by Scott Hostetler there and um, someone I met during the summer times out in Santa Fe is James Button. And both of them, as well as Miss Stroman and Mr. Rowe, have been like so monumental in shaping me as a player and really encouraging me and keeping me going. I remember after an audition, <laughs> James would be like, What's the next one? <laughs> and then the next week he'd be, I'm making reads. You want to play for me? It's like on FaceTime. It wasn't even Zoom back then, it was FaceTime. That's so sweet. Oh, he's so sweet. It's like, we all need mentors and coaches in our life. And I don't even think like those people who I just listed as mentors would be like, oh, I'm her mentor. Like, not at all, right? They're they're my friends. They're my colleagues. <laughs> but it's just find people. I would just say find someone who's a few years down the road and doing what you want to be doing and just like be humble enough to ask the dumb questions because that's how you're going to grow and that's how you're going to learn. Yeah, I relate to all of that a lot, especially the parallels between athletics and, and music. I myself am not an athletic person, but I I also related to what you were talking about of competition and perfectionism being a knife that cuts both ways. And right. 
being um, maturing into that being a positive force, not a mm. destructive force. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a bit um, about specifically how that aspect, how, how you um, turned that into something that was an asset, not a liability and um, advice on how people who, you know, have one approach to competition could does that make sense like yeah wield it for the positive sure so I think a lot of us struggle with you know it's kind of maybe a hot button topic right now but imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. and I think I read something lately that said it's actually not a bad thing because then it means you're humble and working hard and it's a motivator but I also think (laughs) it can shut people down and it has shut me down in the past um, just thinking about who else might show up to the audition, mm-hmm. who's going to show up to this interview. And I, I, um, so I was in Madison when the pandemic hit and I was playing with the symphony and I interviewed previously for this teaching job here as a one-year position mm-hmm. and didn't get it. Um, and the person who got it was wonderful. Um, but that person got a job somewhere else. So then the pa- during the pandemic, they just needed someone to fill in. And so I was filling in. But in the in the middle of it, my heart got so wrapped up in this work. And I was like, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> I want this. But then that's like selfish, right? And so, but when I was preparing for the interview, it's like, I cared so much about it. But then I didn't even know who else was interviewing. And I could think of a laundry list of people who are way more qualified and experienced and more wonderful for this job. And it like got me down so hard. I literally paralyzed, literally stomach cramps, like had to go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like not healthy, right? It's not healthy for anyone. And so it's not helpful to, for me to imagine. And, and then I didn't even know, like, who is coming and it's yeah it's just pressure that you don't need to put on yourself because those are things you can't control right and uh and it's it's really it's hard it's just that the no's have to you have to realize later on like to be thankful for those no's I've like gotten close to audition taking and it's just unbelievably heartbreaking when you come in second place and you can envision yourself living there and doing that thing but it's not helpful to be thinking when you see the other people in the room how much better they are than you like that's just not even going to be productive on any respect and so my mental prep going into auditions and like this interview once I was able to overcome the paralyzed state of my mind and being and just, you know, going through the motions of life when I wanted to be like present to become present, I think it just became self-reliant on my routine and my warm up and thinking about what I want to say artistically and what I wanted to say in an interview when I've never taken an interview before but just organizing my thoughts and having the topics that I wanted to be sure to talk about, no matter what questions they brought me Um, and having materials ready to hand people when you're there. So thinking about all the things you can control and being as prepared as you can, like working so hard in preparation, but then when the day comes, like sometimes you don't even look at any of those materials and then you can just, all that is like in your heart and in your mind and you have to just communicate who you are. And then if it's the right fit, you just have to trust that. So I kept thinking like when I went into an audition that I really wanted, I just kept thinking I'm faithful in my preparation. I did everything I could do. And now I'm just going to sing through my instrument and let, if it's the right thing, it's going to work out because if, it isn't quite the right thing. You don't want it to work out. (laughs) You only want it to work out if it's the right fit. And, and Mm -hmm. then, and then you're going to enjoy your job a whole lot more because then you know that it's the right, the people want you there and it's the right thing for you that the universe wants for you to have. So Mm -hmm. that trust can be so hard. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Yeah. I remember I was breathing. I was like, 
I am strong in my in-breath. I have courage in my out-breath. And it's like, I remember one of my colleagues who knew I was, you know, just having a hard time is like, well, pressure is a good thing because the most strongest substance on earth comes from the most extreme pressure. <laughs> Diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> I kept thinking, be a diamond. <laughs> Pressure is okay. It's only going to make me shine, right? Even though on the inside, I'm like crushing down. (laughs) Well, so I would love to ask you about um, your, this is kind of a left turn. I would love to ask you about gouging machines. Yeah, gouging machines. (laughs) (laughs) Because... As we all know, I mean, of course, this is a double read podcast. <laughs> uh, we're all obsessed with reads, yeah. sometimes for the worse. <laughs> and I have never been more upset than when my gouging machine is not working. <laughs> so what led you to get interested in gouging machine adjustment and how, like, can you help us? <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was at Indiana, well, my teacher, um, my teachers there are very close with Mr. Furlow, John Furlow from Boston. So, um, but his daughter was in our studio, Vivian, when I was there. And so he would come out maybe even twice a year to visit. And um, actually, the first time I met him was at his house. So I, I just bought a gouger and I think I like banged the guide on a clip. You know how you do, you like put the guide down on the side and it bangs the clip and I dented it so badly. I was like, I need, and I was out visiting my brother out on the East coast. And I was like, I'm just going to take it to him. And I remember being like sweating. Cause I was like, I did something bad. <laughs> I was so nervous. And he was like, no, it's good that you're here to learn alongside of this. And I just thought it was really interesting. And maybe my brain works in such a way with logic that I can see steps ahead. And so I always, when, when I saw him working besides just polishing the guide, when he was doing the blade placement and then further explaining it, like, if it's cutting too much, that's the cutting action. But then if it's the offset isn't enough, then you have to push it towards the rod. But we start with the blade away from the rod. All these like logistics, you do the one thing and it has like three results kind of thing. It's not you do one thing and this happens, right? With gougers, it's like so many things. And I just was kind of fascinated by that. And I was like, ooh, I like this. But he kept he kept that's coming to visit. That's good that you're fascinated because <laughs> you're fascinated. I'm traumatized. <laughs> it's it's fascinating I didn't say I like it (laughs) oh but but it is I find it very interesting so he would he would visit and work on our studio machines while he's there and I would just watch him do it and then he was like why don't you do the blade replacement and then eventually I went to one of his gouger seminars and so and at that point I was like oh I think I can cite this blade thing and I just I really liked it. So um, I guess I did like it. I liked the puzzle aspect of it. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I then like when I was freelancing outside of Civic, I played with New Mexico Philharmonic for a year. And then I came, came back to Madison, like didn't have work right away. So I was just, um, oh yeah, I like doing these gougers and I kind of always did it on the side. And then um, I I was doing blade replacements for like, two or three a week. And I just, um, I was able to solve guide problems and uh, bed alignment problems. It was just really a fun venture for me and I needed money and that was, you know, a good thing to do, but I think it kind of hurt my hand a little bit. So um, now I'm just passionate about like my students and my studio machines and my machines and like occasionally helping a friend, but it's more that um, I want to help people be able to maintain their own gouge because if you know what is wrong with your reads and your shape and your setup and what you specifically need for you, what you are doing in your orchestra, what your sound is in your hall, um, then you're going to be the best read maker if you know how to do that 
with your gouging machine. So just like simple maintenance, like blade replacement or bed alignment, I think every oboist should be doing for themselves. I don't think that is um, a foreign skill. It doesn't need to be a foreign skill. It's not that difficult. There's like a few sort of rules that you got to follow with that. And then if it goes so out of whack, it, there's always a way to fix it. <laughs> or you can buy a new gouge. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. No, but there's always a there's always a fix. Like you're never gonna do something unless you like ding up your guide like I did at first when I didn't know what I was doing. P.S. If you wanna protect your guide, put little cork bumper, like glue on, super glue on some cork mm-hmm. over those clips, and then you know, always remember to set your guide down in the center, but if you snap a clip and your guide bangs, it won't, it will protect it. So you don't have to have nicks in your guide. <laughs> so do you like offer like gouger clinics? Do yeah. you do like gouger classes? Yeah. So right oh. for now, I've just helped my students with that. I have a few upper level students that have their own machines and um, doing blade replacements. And then those few friends who still send me their machines. Actually, I don't do that. I want it to be out in the world. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> don't send me your gouge. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, uh, okay. I use those gouges like a guinea pig in the class to show what I'm doing because I don't always need to do... Um, what I need to do, but basically it's just the maintenance, right? So how to, the parts of the gouge, how to take care of it, where do we put oil, what screws need to be tight, set screws, what are adjustment screws that are not supposed to be tight and like how the mechanics of the gouge functions. Cause if you know that, then when there's a problem, there's often an easy solution to it. If you just know how things work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just introducing people to that and then how to, um, the bed alignment as well as blade replacement, just those basics. When it comes to guide repair, I feel like that needs a gouger smith doing it. People can do it. Um, you can buy the sand or get the sanding forms to like resand your guide and stuff like that. But I wouldn't suggest doing that regularly. I think someone should be doing that. But just knowing like what you want in your reads, you can control that with your your gouge. Yeah. It sounds very empowering and <laughs> terrifying. So I'm glad oh. that you are out there teaching people how to do it. <laughs> you can do it too. Everyone can do it. <laughs> you just yeah. have to know how to sight the blade and see the center, how centered it is, and make sure not too much is exposed. And know if you expose too much, what is it going to do? Like it might grab at the cane or um, knowing how to even just the basics of it's the simple things like raising your parallels or rate uh-huh. to make all of the measurements thicker or all of them thinner. Like some people don't even know how to do that. And it's just a simple thing. And yo, know, you can nothing. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> it's just, yeah, we can take, we can t- take care of them. And people, I think if people should not be afraid to be an adult learner to be curious is a a really good quality and it doesn't show weakness it shows strength so if you're out there and you think (laughs) i am embarrassed i don't know how to do this it's not true at all like this is just like it maybe wasn't taught as part of the curriculum but it's something that we all can acquire and learn and yeah yeah that makes very empowering thank you (laughs) <laughs> that makes total sense to me because as a bassoonist looking at this whole phenomenon from the outside, it always I sense seemed, judgment in your in her voice right now. <laughs> it always seemed really um weird to me, like um the financial implications of every time a machine has to be adjusted, it has to be sent off. Uh yeah. what we do is so expensive mm-hmm. a- anyway mm-hmm. that if you add in that component, you know. Mm-hmm that it's ultimately can contribute to the accessibility issue that it it wouldn't solve an accessibility issue, certainly, but it contributes to it. And then you, as a studio teacher, we all know budgets are getting ever smaller, not ever larger. And so it just makes sense to incorporate that into a Mm. curriculum. Um, Yeah, that, that really resonates 
with me a lot. Um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. true. And and the funny thing is these like gouger smiths or people who are gouger makers that then you send your machine to and you're paying, you know, for all the insurance. I've had someone mail me a gouge and they didn't put insurance and it was lost. It was so heartbreaking. <laughs> I still have nightmares about that. This is one reason I don't let people ship their gouges anymore. But right. anyways, you're shipping your gouge, you're paying for the maintenance, you're paying for the tool, the blade to replace it. All these things, it adds up really quickly. And you're doing that, you know, once or twice a year. Who knows? Everybody does it differently, but, and it depends on the machine. But <laughs> the funny thing is the person doing the work is spending a lot of time and their cane doing it. it. You don't make money. Like I said, I was so poor that I was doing this basically, but it's a passion project that those people have given. And so even though we're spending so much money on it, they have given their unbelievable mathematical brains and creative energy towards this. Like we're so fortunate that they have done that. And like, yes, we want to create like more innovation in, in the tool industry and try and make it more accessible. But the thing is it, it, it is like a labor of love that they've given the world of, of double read players mm-hmm. yeah it it doesn't it it's not what pays <laughs> beyond gouging or yeah. i guess including gouging um sure. can we hear about your read making setup sure. and approach yeah, yeah. and all that good stuff yeah so um knife sharpening i feel very passionate about i use the dmt 4000 grit diamond plate three inch by eight inch. Um, and then I use the knife merchant, uh, Dick polish Dickeron. Uh, it's polish. It's a polishing honing rod. Um, and that's with a double hollow ground knife. And actually lately I, uh, the summertime is like when I try new things and I tried the new muse echo replacement and, and maybe people will, People are very opinionative about this, but I think it's fabulous. This replaceable blade, do you know this knife by Mizuko? Yeah. yeah. And you just use a holding rod. So when I travel now, I don't have to use, I don't have to carry stone. I just have to carry the sword, (laughs) this honing rod, but, but it, um, it's very consistent. And I, um, so I use the honing rod just is this too basic to explain? I use the honing no, rod please. just like, okay. I use a honing rod just like the stone. So I'm going, um, I have my stone horizontal on my desk and you can do a vertical. It doesn't matter, but horizontal is how I do it. And I go right to left at the, at the, at the dime level, low, low angle, and then left to right at the nickel angle. And my teacher would then put the knife flat facing the first way and draw it to towards himself and that was honing the edge or setting the burr like refining the burr but I find that my angle on the stone is going to change as I use my knife um I have to increase the angle and so I want to be able to scrape my reeds perpendicular always I always want my knife to be perpendicular to read so in order to get the knife at its sharpest perpendicularly that's what I use a honing rod for so it doesn't matter on my stone what angle I have my knife at when I go to the honing rod then I can get it um at just the right angle with really light pressure. It's a very fine burst. So if you use heavy, some people use heavy pressure on the rod. And I think that um, curl, it turns the burr too far. And then um, your sharpest point won't be perpendicular and it won't be as creamy of an edge in order to get crumbs off on the tip. So that's like my nice setup. And then um, my shape is a Mac plus tied up at the ears. And uh, I found this, shaping machine by reeds and stuff in our in our studio and I brought it home this summer to try and I haven't quite tried mm-hmm. it yet so that's my next experiment and so um at Midwest Musical Imports I just got um the Mac Plus but I think I need the Mac Plus Plus and they were out of stock so if anyone has it in stock let me know I'll buy it from you so <laughs> I want to try this out and, and, and instead of folding the cane over and shaping because I always feel like when I'm teaching students 
on the original shaper tips, I want them to hold the cane beyond just the prongs holding the cane onto the tip because the cane has a curvature. So I want the cane to be flush with the tip. And so I hold it, but I'm always so nervous that they're going to scrape the top of their fingers off. Um, <laughs> but I don't want that to happen. So um, I'm interested to see if, I don't, I, I don't know. We'll see if the shaping machine works. Cause then that, it seems better on your hands and safer and we're, we're going to try it. So. So it's a straight shape like a bassoonist would use. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're on audio. I'm going to show you this, but it's like, so you fold, it would fold in the center. Is that like bassoon? Well, it, uh, there's not a machine that removes the cane for us, but most shape, not a bit. I shouldn't say most, many. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like that. As opposed to this machine is kind of cool. It has these like, prongs then again i have no idea if it if it's good <laughs> i shouldn't say i shouldn't be talking about this on a podcast delete this <laughs> i'm kidding <laughs> i don't know if it's good i haven't tried it yet but i'm excited to try it so that's what i'm telling you so you slide the razor blade things along it and then it smooths out it just smooth yeah smooths it out but i feel like because i tie my shape up at the ears it's essentially what the mac plus plus shape is and so if i do it I, I think I want to try. I also have a Pfeiffer Mac here, which is, you know, a little bit wider through there. So through the, the belly of the reed. So I also do Mac plus tied up at the ears. Yeah. yeah. Is, is that why? Cause it's a narrower, it's more like a Mac plus plus. Yeah. I think that's how the Mac plus plus came to be Mr. Mac. Oh. Yeah. He, he said that um his, he wanted it just a little wider. And so he thought if he shaped it up and then tied it lower, oh, then wider. It would, okay. yeah, it'd be a little wider. And then he had them make the Mac plus plus off that measurements, but it's not actually quite the same effect, but that's all right. <laughs> I also think if I shift the cane down on the shaper tip, it can splay open at the top. And I like how on the plus plus I can leave it off the the what do you call it the shape I guess yeah the shape surface a little bit and interesting you know the fold over will be more accurate and true to itself but yeah Yeah, less disturbed yeah so for gout I should say for gouge I mainly use a frillo I have two frillos and an English horn frillo that's what I use exclusively on English horn um I started using a graph at Indiana and it was really good and I liked the double radius gouge and so I use a frillo um, and the English worm frillo is one that I designed. Um, I worked some one summer with uh, Mark Ackerman and he was helping me with setting up uh, a, another person's English horn gouge. And then I took mine and he gave me the tools and I, uh, I shaped the guide um, of my English horn gouge. And I'm really happy with that one. And then um, and I think I used the J. Rowe blade on that, which my teacher Roger Rowe helped design that it's um uh asymmetrical curve of a blade and helps with the fall off so of the cane measurement so then um on oboe i use a frillo and then i also have a cooney bear um that i set up that is a 10.5 bed with like a 10.4 blade in it and so it gets a little bit thicker on the sides and i like that setup i think that's really nice for like solo playing or chamber music playing it it makes a little lighter read but um still with a really deep sound um but not uh not necessarily what i'd want to play in the orchestra uh so that's that and my english horn setup then i have a my main vocal that i use is one that mr simer made and then uh both instruments I play uh Lore uh a Royale on oboe and then the English horn too. Yeah. Since we're talking about English horn, I would yeah. love to ask you about maintaining your English horn chops when you're playing mostly oboe or playing, you yeah. know, maintaining your oboe chops if you're playing mostly English horn. Yeah, right, right. So uh, my orchestra jobs are English horn and oboe, but mainly English horn. Um, and so, but then at school, I'm teaching oboe. Well, I teach English horn too, but mostly oboe and then playing a quintet, which is also mostly oboe. So um, some days if I haven't touched the English horn and we have a big, a big week coming up, instead of just 
jumping into my orchestra rep that I'm preparing for that concert. I'll do my warm up on English horn or I'll like play my etudes. I love playing fast fairlings on English horn, especially when I'm breaking in a read that I'm not listening to like all the finesse necessarily. I can just uh, blow and play through them um, and then finish the read. Cause with English horn, I don't want to finish the read right away. Otherwise it's going to be over scraped. So I'm always, um, uh, doing more playing and scraping of English horn than with oboe. I always put a bulk or I always put a wire on my English horn reads because then it has more projection, especially more for the higher register, which can get pretty tight on English horn. And that gives it a little bit more breadth and project- projection. Um, but yeah, I'll play my warm up on English horn. And then um, before I, I jump into that repertoire versus like doing my warm up on oboe, and then going to, like later in the day, maybe is when I'm practicing my orchestral music. And then I jump on English horn. It's like, no, start the day on English horn. And then you're going to be better for that rehearsal later in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to oboe, doesn't the oboe always feel like a toy <laughs> compared to yeah. English horn? It's like, <laughs> this little thing, <laughs> pea shooter. <laughs> Actually, I played bass oboe a few weeks ago. And going back to English horn, I'm like, this can't be big enough. Like, this isn't right. <laughs> It's so weird <laughs> that there's there's something wrong with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you use any um like weight aids with the English horn? Do you use like a neck oh, strap or a or a? Yeah. That's a great question, and I'm super excited because I found a system. I I mentioned I have like hand problems from gouging so much. Um, I also noticed because I'm playing so much English horn, it's just like so much weight on here. So I use like the wrist and I use the neck strap. Do you know the wrist where it connects to your stand? It's, um, I think Bob Morgan created it in Chicago and it connects to your stand and it has a spring system. You set the bell on it. Well, this took weight off my hands and I loved it. Like it's a great system and so many people use it and it's wonderful. Um, but I felt like I needed more mobility and I felt like the balance point on my thumb was still in pain. Uh, that's just me. Um, many people love it and use it. Let me, let me grab it. Cause I want to show you it. So this is the, uh, it's basically like what a functions like a Fred. So it goes to your chair and it clips with this, uh, yes, onto your English horn, but this is by Ergo Brass. So they created, um, the system, uh, for trumpets and trombones and brass instruments. Um, but this, then I put this on my chair and then this goes top part goes on the English horn and connects right to where my thumb is. So that's like a really good balance point and it bends this way and then it can bend this way. And so I move, I move, I'm pretty obnoxious when I play. (laughs) So I like mobility, (laughs) especially if you're playing like the juicy English horn solo, you got to be able to move. And so this one, it allows me still that freedom. I maybe don't have as much upward downward, but I can do more side to side and leaning forward and I can position it differently Mm. and it doesn't feel rigid at all. And it, it takes the weight off entirely. I don't even, it has like, it goes at an angle. And so it even pushes the instrument forward. So what I was before having to feel supporting with my thumb there, um, I don't have to feel with this. So my quintet plays standing up. And so I, and we played a piece this spring that had a lot of English horn and I was like, Oh my goodness. Um, I'm going to have to try this peg. And at first I was like, I asked all my students, I was like, you have to let me know if I look like, uh, you know, like geriatric <laughs> player or something. And they were like, no, actually this pull. So it goes like straight down to the ground and it, it works really well. So you just take the top of the one that you went to the chair and you put it in here in it and then hook it on. And it functions the same way. And then it's telescoping and it's really lightweight. And then it goes to the ground. And then you can stand it and it holds like really well. But it goes to the ground and goes at an angle that like is between your legs. And so it never, um, it, it actually what, it was super stable and super comfortable. And in some ways I like it better than the chair mount. And so sometimes now in orchestra, I'll play with this long peg to the ground. Um, but no one said they even noticed when I was playing with it. But what they did notice is when I switched my instruments and I put it on the peg, it's like this peg going out five feet behind the English horn on the stage. 
<laughs> oh. It looks a little funny, but like people ignored it after a minute. So, but they said when I was playing, they couldn't even see that it was there. It was like, you know, it just blended right in. So I'm that's amazing. Paid. Yeah, I'm not a paid sponsor yet. <laughs> <laughs> I also I really love, love this. I love like when we can say I need help with this instrument because it is breaking my arm. Yeah. Because it <laughs> is so awkward and heavy and I always feel yeah. like I'm about to break my wrist if I'm not using right. something. Right. And our wrist is like at, not at the most natural angle going to the lower joint. And then your mm-hmm. fingers are spread out more. And I even have big hands and it hurts. It hurts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is, yeah. yeah, I feel like this is giving me a new life, which is like so exciting. And that's only this past year that I started using it. So, yeah, I'm really happy with that. Would you mind telling us about a favorite memory of a past performance? Oh, well, maybe most recently what's fresh on my mind is I did a a a string trio so like oboe quartet uh premieres of five works that I got from um a new friend that I met in Spain and um I met her because our cello professor her his wife's twin sister is the cello player in Sarah Roper's quartet and so um in Seville Spain and they were doing uh uh like a crowdfunding campaign and he was like do you want to be a part of this project you could do the u.s premieres and i was like oh this seems cool like and (laughs) that's probably one of the coolest things about my job is now i can do these projects that in the past i was like well how do i find the means to make it work and i feel like being at a research institution they're so supportive of this like new projects which is really fun and like i don't feel like we talked enough about that in my doctoral studies like what actually a job entails and like that's a really attractive fun thing that that we get to do as professors and it's exciting anyway so that the performance then um i brought it back and the the violist who was the twin sister of the cellist in Spain, she played it. And it was fun because she would just write her sister all the time. And I would write Sarah too on WhatsApp, you know, like, what is the fingering for this harmonic? And <laughs> it was pretty fun. <laughs> so um, I think that performance was really fun. It wasn't like the doing five premieres on one month of learning because after their premieres, when I got the rep and then I was performing it a month later, it was too much to handle and it was so stressful and how are we ever going to learn all this music individually and as an ensemble when it's all new and um but actually the performance was so rewarding because there were so many more things part like I felt like the creative capital was spread out that it wasn't just on how I played that performance or how our chamber group played that performance it was like meeting people and becoming accustomed to new sounds and learning new things. And there was so much value in it beyond just the one performance that it took the weight off that situation and, and, and made it really personal. And so that was really rewarding to perform something that was instead of just a line of repertoire, it was like had a wealth of experience that I got to, you know, share with the audience about the pieces and about the composers and, and and my colleagues, it's amazing how like the week before we're like, we're not going to pull this off. And then it's like literally rehearsing on the day of the recital. We're like, oh, it's coming together. <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's good feeling. New music, new music can go sometimes. <laughs> Lindsay, what is your advice for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Oh, I would say set goals and then don't hold yourself to them. I would say set a vision so you have momentum towards something, but don't put success at that goal. Put success at whatever your future does bring you. So then you are um, absolutely fulfilled in what you're doing. So I think we need to open our perspective on, on all the work that we're doing as performers, as teachers, as artists, as scholars, um, we need to be really open in our vision. And, but as a young oboist, 
you need to just have momentum and resilience and not get down when you don't win the competition that you go out for and you thought all your heart was into it. Yes, put your heart into it while you're practicing. Go so hard for it. But then like know that there's so much value in that process. I can't tell you how many times I was preparing for an audition really hard and I thought I wouldn't have a shot at it and I would do like well, or what if I even didn't do well? Okay. So I worked really, really hard for an audition. Even if I thought I could get it, I didn't go well. I didn't win it on that day. The next audition is going to go better because of how hard I prepared for that. Everything you put into one preparation for a competition or a performance is going to just make you better for the next thing. That's beautiful. Thank you for those amazing closing words, Lindsay Flowers. It was so (laughs) nice to have you on Double Read Dish. Oh, it was really fun to meet you guys. We hope you enjoyed that episode. We pulled out all the stops to get it put together for you in time. So I really hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, connect with us on social media. The next episode is October 1st. And if you've been a listener for a while, you know that fun stuff comes along with Double Read Dish in October. And this is no exception. So follow us on social media so you're in the know. Galit, who's on the next episode? We had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Layla Zamora, contrabassoonist of the San Diego Symphony. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads.